Good morning, church. So good to hear your voices join together in the praise of our God and our King. Although I think I can speak for you, and I trust you'll understand that I was especially grateful to hear one particular voice this morning. So glad, brother, to have your uh, voice recovered and appreciate the way that you use it to minister to us and to worship our God among us. I look forward to having your voice join us again on the weekly podcast that we do, which I encourage you to check out if you haven't done that yet, as we kind of debrief each Sunday sermon and talk about other things unedited and unscripted, but we have an enjoyable time together and hopefully an edifying one for you uh, as we engage in that way together. There's a common story that captures the imaginations of many people in the worlds of both fiction and real life. And if you look it up, there's a lot about it. It's a common trope in literature. It's, uh, in other ways, it, it flashes itself out, as I'm going to mention in a moment. But it's the story of the long-lost royal. The story of someone somewhere who is an unknown king or queen, living a ghastly existence, but whose life is one day transformed when someone either seeks them out to tell them the truth or... They are rescued by some brave, loyal individual. And this prospect of significance has captured the hearts and minds of many readers and watchers in many stories. But the same is also true for real-life stories. On the genealogy documentary, first aired on British television and then an American television, the show called Who Do You Think You Are brings on some well-known individuals And over the course of the show, they have revealed to some very well-known individuals that they are of royal lineage, such as former prime minister in Britain, Boris Johnson. In fact, as it would turn out, the more we explore and document our ancestries, millions of Brits are descendants of kings of the past, as are 13% of Americans with UK ties. In our search for significance and status, people are enamored by such connections, and not just to royalty, but to famous men and women of history or the present time. Every so often, people, when they learn of my last name, ask me if I'm related to Ed Sheeran. Despite, usually what I say, despite coming from a large family where I have between 40 and 50 first cousins... I'm still not related to Ed Sheeran. But sometime as a social experiment, I should pull someone's leg and pretend that I am. Oh, yeah, we're cousins. I've been to loads of his shows. Anytime he's in North America, he flies me down and we hang out and I go backstage to all of his concerts. It's brilliant. And if they believed me because of who he is, they would see me differently. There's no doubt many people would see themselves in a new light because of such a relationship and the status this relationship would bestow. Maybe you've daydreamed about some variation of this long-lost royal theme, wishing it were true, wishing out of nowhere your life would be transformed. Why, you'd even settle for just a small advantage, a little perk to take the edge off the grind of life. And as we think about it, a claim to fame, a little bigger slice of the pie, that'd be great, wouldn't it? 
But of course, to set our hopes there would be foolish, would it not? But not because those hopes would be too high, but because those hopes would be too low. The reason the long-lost royal theme seems to resonate with so many, whether in fiction or in real life, is because it rings of truth. I'm here to tell you this morning, perhaps for the first time, if you've never heard this before, that you are a long-lost royal. I'm here to remind you again, if you already are a Christian, that you are a vassal king and queen of the Most High God. We were made by and we were made for the King of heaven and earth. And though we squandered the relationship and status we were made for by turning our backs on the one who made us for it, Jesus has come to get us back and to return us to the heights from which we have sinfully fallen. So forget earthly kings and queens, prime ministers and presidents, or historical and cultural icons. The God of all has gone to incredible lengths to unite us to his Son, to bring us to himself, and to bestow on us a standing and a status beyond what we could have ever imagined. And we will see this as we learn from Exodus this morning that God brings us near for covenant relationship and for privileged status. Covenant relationship with himself and a treasured royal position in his eyes and in his kingdom. God brings us near. We are brought near for covenant relationship and for privileged status. And I don't want you just to take my word for it. So turn with me to Exodus 19, as Pastor Caleb already alluded to. It's page 60 in those blue Bibles in front of you if you need to use one. And you're most welcome to keep that if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures for yourself as our gift to you. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 7 is what we will work our way through this morning. Page 60. But before we hear God's word again, let me pray for us, for preacher and hearer alike. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would not permit the enemy of your kingdom and of our souls to steal away any of the seed that is scattered in these moments together. Rather, Lord, my prayer is that you would till the soil of the hearts before me even now, that there would be a readiness and acceptance of your word, that it would find good soil, and for your glory produce a harvest, 30, 60, even 100 times what is sown. Do this for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit says. 
On the third moon, new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a subtle yet significant way, Exodus 19.1 marks a new section in the book of Exodus. There's a fresh beginning, a turning of the page. You see, most of the verses in the Hebrew Bible begin with a letter that we would translate as and or now or but or then. However, Exodus 19.1 doesn't have one of those because something new and something is significant is about to unfold in this book of the covenant section that we are in. Roughly three months have passed since the day the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, and now they are being brought into something new. Now we are given a location and time and space where God's meeting with them at the mountain of His directing. Having been saved, they are now going to hear of the relationship God intends to have with them and the mission that He intends to give them. The Israelites, having come through the waters following Yahweh's deliverance from Egypt, And knowing his provision in the wilderness, arrive now at the mountain to worship, as he said to Moses back in Exodus 3.18. That this indeed is a new beginning, is a pattern repeated in redemptive history. As one writer notes, emerging from the waters, Israel as God's firstborn son find themselves, as Adam and Noah before, brought to the holy mountain of God, and then to the gates of Eden, which for Israel is going to be the tabernacle. And I trust as this saved people gathers around the mountain, you can see how this is amplified fully when Jesus meets with his disciples on the mountain of his directing. There, having secured our deliverance by his death and resurrection, there assuring the disciples of his promise to always be with them to the end of the age, He assigns to them a mission born out of the privileged status that they have as this new humanity, this new kingdom of priests, a mission of making disciples that continues to this day. And the purpose of this is for a people to be brought before God's throne in the new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, where the whole universe, the whole cosmos is the temple of God's presence. 
As we work our way through Exodus 19 this morning and next week, we're going to see just how much these two deliverances and two mountains and two missions are connected in these verses. Note first a couple of important features of Exodus 19 that are good for us to recognize from the beginning. For one, there is a threefold repetition of the word wilderness in verses 1 and 2. And uh, one of our life groups this week sent in the question of where is Mount Sinai today? And rather than speculating, as many understandably do, on the actual location where God's people camped, I want to focus on the following. We've learned so far that the wilderness has been an experience of testing where God trains us to trust him. It has been a place of grumbling, a place of failure, a place of sin, but also a place of grace. Yet what we should also recognize is that Wilderness University is a place of revelation. As Stephen Dempster identifies, there are 57 chapters of Revelation while at Mount Sinai, which is significant, he writes, because there are 68 chapters before it and 59 chapters after it, which puts Sinai in the very middle of the first five books of the Bible. And sometimes, as happens later in 1 Kings and Revelation, God takes us into the wilderness to protect us and to teach us And we do well to bear that in mind. A second important feature of this chapter to note at the outset is this. If Moses was wearing a Fitbit, he'd be getting his steps in. In verse 3, Moses goes up the mountain. In verse 7, he goes down the mountain. In verse 8, he goes back up the mountain. In verse 14, he goes back down the mountain. And in verse 20, he goes back up the mountain for a third time. And in verse 21, he goes back down the mountain for a third time. He tells the things God tells him to the people. He tells the things the people tell him to God. And though this will not be our emphasis until next Sunday, let us nevertheless pay attention to the distance that exists between God and the people. We are brought near or covenant relationship and privileged status, but the God who brings us near is a holy God, and we need a particular way to actually be brought into his presence. With all that said, let's consider the riches of what Moses hears on his first trip up the mountain. Verse 3 reads, While Moses went up to God, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Those who went into Egypt were merely a household. And tell the people of Israel, they came out of Egypt a nation. This is what the Lord wants them to hear. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God's opening salvo. The first words he wants Israel to hear upon arriving at the mountain, before the mountain shakes, with the holy presence of the Lord of heaven and earth, before the giving of the law, he wants them to hear of his grace. We are brought near first and foremost 
by grace. God is the one who sets us free. God is the one who defeats enemies we could not defeat by ourselves. We are brought near, and this by his grace. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This was God's doing. It was not their own. They did nothing in Egypt except witness the deliverance of God unfold. They accomplished nothing by themselves. They contributed nothing of theirs. The plagues were the power of God. The blood of the lamb that they daubed on the doorposts were the instruction and provision of God. The protection from the destroyer of death was a result of God seeing the blood of the sacrifice over their homes and standing in front of the doorway so that death would not enter. And then when they stood by the Red Sea with Egypt's army bearing down, they were simply told to watch. The only reason they were gathered around the mountain is because of what God continues to say, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's what I did, how I bore, how I brought. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. And if we have been plucked out of the pit of sin, if we have been carried away from the enemy of Satan, if we have been delivered from the clutches of the fear of death, if we have been carried as on the back of an eagle over the storm of God's righteous judgment we deserve the full fury of, it is all because of his grace. And if you are in Christ, this is what has happened to you. God has brought you to himself. By his grace, a grace which humbles us. To simply receive what could never be earned grates against our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, our self-conception, our strength, our intellect. For many, this is a barrier to the good news of Jesus Christ. To be asked to come to him as but a child, with outstretched arms that can only receive is perhaps frightening and maybe even downright offensive to you if you're not yet a Christian. To receive the grace of God in Christ is to admit that we're helpless. To acknowledge that all we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But this is the truth. We will never be good enough on our own to come into the presence of God. We will never erase our bad deeds with our good. If our standing with God was dependent upon ourselves, none would enter into the, his presence. Yet when we accept this reality and throw ourselves on God's grace, we experience that his grace is not only humbling, but it is wonderfully freeing. to receive the gift of God's Son dying in our place on the cross relieves us of the crushing burden of pretending to be what we're not. God knows the sin inside of us. We know, if we're honest with ourselves, the sin inside of us. 
he and we and others see what comes out of us because of the sin that's inside of us. Our efforts to mask our guilt and shame, and we all have stories of this. Our charade at trying to appear righteous, of imagining that we can contend with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our attempts to make it through this groaning existence on our own, they are exhausting and they are destructive. There's no rest. There's no hope in these efforts. But when we receive his grace, as the Israelites experienced in their deliverance from Egypt, we realize that he is the one who removes the sin. He's the one who removes the guilt. He's the one who removes the shame. And in so doing, he's the one who sets us free to give us new life and to give us hope. And this grace is wonderfully transforming as well as motivating. I'm just adding this in. I don't have it in my notes this morning. My kids, two of my kids were engaged in an exercise this week with their school on the difference between uh, external and internal transformation. And they were given a bunch of stories to read to see demonstrations of, the, of, the, of both of those and then to relate that to the transformation that we receive through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the stories, I don't even remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was about a, a Russian man by the name of Lushkov, who was a cheat, he was a liar, he was a drunk, and he would just try to scam people out of money. Until one day, a man took pity on him and offered him a job, trying to give him an honest way to better his status in life. And so he invited him in to chop wood in, on his farm. And uh, every day there was a wood pile, and so Lushkov was given his day's wages by this man. And years later, the man runs into Lushkov, and he's now become a lawyer, and he's in his right mind, and he's put together, and he, he says, see what an honest day's work did for you and the transformation that that brought about. And, and Lushkov begins to tell him the true story of what really happened when he came to work on his property. There was a woman there who took great pity on him. And she would warn him of his state and warn him of the dangers of hell and of judgment. And every day she would shed tears over him. Every day she would cut the wood and he would earn the income. And he says to the man who gave him the job in the first place that when he saw this love, when he experienced the truth that would come from her lips, when he benefited and got what he didn't deserve at her expense, he said, a change came over my heart and I have never been the same again since. When we realize God's riches at Christ's expense that we have been blessed with, it changes us entirely. It humbles us, yes. It frees us, yes. It changes us, yes. And it motivates us to live for this one who has brought us to himself by his grace. And when we consider just how far we had fallen from the glory of God as sinful rebels, grace is amplified all the more when we realize that God wants us to be with him. 
at the outset of this incredible scene that is about to unfold for a moment of sheer wonder, the time and the place and the, the mountain and the sights and the sounds, they actually fade into the background as we hear God say that he wants his people close. He wants us near. He says, I brought you to myself. Someone has written that from God's perspective, the climax of the exodus is the closeness of his people with himself. And since Adam and Eve's ejection from the Edenic mountaintop in the garden, this is God's gracious covenantal trajectory, his dwelling in the midst of his covenant people and their dwelling in his presence. As Victor Hamilton writes, God's primary purpose of bonding with Israel is for that rapturous enjoyment of each other's presence. Before Israel is chosen for service, Israel is chosen for fellowship. This is astonishing. That while we were liars and cheats and vile like Lushkov in the story, that he would actually still want us. He wants us close. He wants us near. He wants us for himself. You. Yes, you. Sinful, doubting, fearful, weak, you. He brings us near. Because he wants us to be near. And he does it by his grace. And this brings us to the relational language and, and privileged status of what is at the center of this first, first portion of, of Exodus. God brings us near by his grace. He brings us near for covenant relationship. He brings us near for covenant relationship. Look at what the Lord says to Moses at the beginning of verse 5. Now, therefore, on the basis of this powerful, gracious act of God alone, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And before we explore just how privileged this status is, let us first consider the covenantal aspect of this relationship. And I, I, I want to just delve into a little bit of history here because it helps us understand what is going to unfold. Exodus 19, as has been well documented, follows, I quote, the form and structure of ancient Near Eastern covenants and treaties. And these had certain elements to them. And I want to just show you where they are in the text because the differences and the similar similarities as we move through this portion of Scripture are going to be very valuable for us. These agreements that existed in the ancient world, they involved a, a, an identification of the author, the one who wrote them, a history of past relationship between the two parties, some kind of basic stipulation, then a detailed stipulation, then a document clause, witnesses, blessings, and curses. In verse 4, there's a past relationship. The Lord says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's what's happened. In verse 5, there's a basic stipulation. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and then that's going to be fleshed out in great detail in Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. 
And then in verses 5 and 6, there's the blessing. You shall be my treasure possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In verse 6, there's a document clause. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in verse 8, there's this agreement by the people to enter into this relationship. One, I quote, of complete loyalty and obedience as a vassal to Yahweh, the great king, which is the whole end of this covenant agreement. So the whole purpose of this is Israel living in holy relationship with Yahweh for his glory and for the blessing of the nations. Again, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now to Israel, God is looking for a faithful covenant partner, a faithful covenant son who will represent his image and likeness, who will exercise dominion and dynasty. This is what God has brought us near for. And Israel, having been saved by the grace of God, in keeping with the covenant promises previously made to their forefathers, they are now being invited into such a relationship. And just like Abraham, Israel must obey Yahweh's voice and keep his requirements, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Yet this response is built upon the grace with which the covenant relationship is founded. That's why the now therefore is present in verse 5. He's saying, this is how I want you to live in light of the exodus. As two Individuals write, this text is clear. The old covenant is based upon grace. And grace motivates the keeping of the covenant, just as we find in the new covenant. The emphasis isn't so much, you better obey Israel, or you will lose the relational and privileged status that we're about to talk about. The emphasis is more on the enjoyment of the relationship and privileged status that they will be given. Should they surely walk in obedience as God's sovereignly, graciously chosen covenant partner? Now, that being said, we know that Israel failed in this regard. They did not keep their promise to obey, and they fell short of the kingdom of priests and holy nations that they were being made to be, again, the meaning of which we'll explore in a moment. And yet, in faithfulness to the unconditional promises God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, and to Abraham and his sons, God provides in the new covenant a faithful son who would surely obey God's voice and fulfill the entirety of the covenant that Israel is about to receive. And he does this. Because God promises over and over in the scriptures that he will save a people for himself. And he will be their God. And they will be his people. He wants us. And in Jesus, he came to get us so that we could enjoy this covenant relationship forever. A covenant finally forged by the blood of the one who died to secure this relational standing between us and the God of heaven and earth, which is absolutely breathtaking. And through this 
covenant relationship, God will establish his kingdom. Look with me at the rest of the words Yahweh wants Israel to hear as communicated to Moses and as Moses communicates to the elders. He says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now in light, we read this in light of what Jesus has done and the new covenant ratified by his blood, just as the old covenant here was ratified by blood, when we realize that the privileged status that God bestows upon Israel here is universalized to encompass the church. This is what God brings his people near to become. He brings us near by grace. He brings us near for covenant relationship. He brings us near for privileged status, which scratches that longing for significance that every human being seems to have and is only rightly ordered when we see it in relation to God. If you were struggling to embrace the wondrous truth that God actually wants us close, hear again how God views his covenant people in this phrase, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, he brings us near for this privileged status. In the ancient world, and in the modern world too, I suppose, kings had treasures. They owned land and property and people and riches and soldiers and horses and chariots. It was all theirs. But among those treasures was a special collection set apart from all the rest. Think today of the crown jewels of our own monarchy. They own a lot, but those are something special in all of the treasures that they would possess. Or has been put another way, the earth is like a ring on God's finger, and God's covenant people are as the jewel in that ring. That's how he sees Israel. Now, should this elicit some dismay, because I don't know if anyone in the room is of Jewish descent, although you can correct me later if I'm wrong. We're all Gentiles. And should this elicit some dismay over Israel's election, and how is it that they get the privileged status, and some even have laid the charge against God of this paternal narcissism, we should give careful consideration of the two additional terms that delineate Israel's covenant status of their privileged position. Their status is that of treasured possession. God looks out on all the peoples of the earth and he is especially enamored with Israel. But in this status, there is an implied role. They are a kingdom of priests. They are a holy nation. Some of you have probably gone to see a movie in 3D. You put on a pair of glasses and if you don't look through the right and the left lens, the picture just looks weird. Kingdom of priests and holy nation are the left and right lenses to help us fully understand the picture of what it means to be God's treasured possession. So they relate to each other in these ways. The first of these terms, kingdom of priests, only appears here in the Old Testament, but it has generated much discussion because it is used in the New Testament. Israel's status 
as a kingdom of priests was, as someone puts it, for the sake of the nations. Someone else explains it this way. Israel's assignment from God involved intermediation. That is, they were not to be a people unto themselves, enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, as a kingdom of priests, they were to represent God to the rest of the world. And so God brings this people close. He enters into a relationship with them, and then he sends them out to show everybody who he is so that they will want to enter into a relationship with him as well. And in conjunction with this covenant status of treasure possession, which kingdom of priests helps us understand, Israel would also be a holy nation. This is another of the lenses we look through to see what treasure possession means. Israel will be a holy nation. And this means more than just that they would be set apart. With Exodus 19, 4 and 6 in view, others have written that in terms of daily life, to be holy means to live in full submission to the will of God. For the sake of the purposes of God, to belong completely to Him. And if you're waking up every morning and thinking to yourself that I am among the treasured possession of God's people, why would we want to live any other way? And so God bestows on them the status of treasured possession. And in doing so, he gives them a role. They experience this inherited Adam-like role, giving the devoted service of a son and honored king in a covenant relationship. But this is about more than just Israel, because as mentioned, this very status is ascribed to the new humanity God is recreating in Jesus Christ. What we read here about Israel is the status and role that's ascribed to us in Christ. And this is why I don't look to the geopolitical nation of Israel in the Middle East to see the fullness of what God is doing in his world. Because he has grafted in the Gentiles as well as those Jews who believe and who hoped in his promises in the past. And he has made them one man. And through that, he bestows upon them the same status of treasure possession and kingdom of priests and holy nation. It's not that I don't care about what's happening in that part of the world. I do. There's horrible things that are happening, and I pray that God brings them to an end. But my hope is not rooted there. My hope is rooted in the church of Jesus Christ and what he is doing by his spirit to make a people for himself. If you don't believe me, listen to what 1 Peter 2.9 says, writing to a church comprised of primarily, primarily Gentiles. He says, but you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Where do you think he's getting this language from? From here. And it's a direct quotation of the Greek translation of Exodus 19.6 that he's getting it from. In addition, Similar language of kingdom and priests is used by John in Revelation 1.6. It will be our benediction this morning. 
The same is also heard in the new song in Revelation 5.10 of a kingdom of priests. And since the singers are made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, G.K. Beale is right to conclude, I quote, the exodus idea of the kingdom and priesthood have been universalized. And if kingdom of priests and holy nation is helping us see the full picture of treasured possession, all who are in Christ should consider themselves viewed this way by God. We have been released by the blood of a Passover lamb brought to God himself to be his treasured possession, to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that all the world will see who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. That's what this means for the Christian and for the church. Jesus is the true Israel, the firstborn son, the royal priest, God's treasured possession first and foremost, who alone succeeded in fulfilling the role offered to Israel conditionally in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. The repeated failure of Israel helps us to see that we needed someone else to fulfill this role, and it is the conquering Christ, the slain lamb and the resurrected lion. He establishes God's new covenant people as his priestly kingdom and holy nation, and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, secures God's people as the image of God. And what this means is that united to Christ by faith and indwelled by the Spirit, the Christian and the church now enjoys the same privileged status of covenant relationship with the holy triune God who delivered Israel from Egypt. And not only is there this anticipated return to the presence of God in all of its fullness, there's a restoration to the role Adam and Eve were granted in the garden that Christ, the last Adam, fulfilled where Israel failed. I don't know if you realize quite fully what it is that you've done here this morning. When we came into this room and when we joined our voices together, we were fulfilling our role of kingdom of priests and holy nation. Because when Peter writes and, this, and gives those terms to the church, it's, he says that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. You've been doing that this morning. And though the whole world couldn't fit in this room, anyone who would come into this room would see that dynamic unfolding right before their eyes. And our hope and prayer, and I pray almost every Sunday morning, that people would fall on their faces seeing that God is among us and become worshipers of him as well. Just because we gathered and sang and prayed and preached and read his word. That's the role we've been given. We don't do it as a, a mere individuals. We do it as a whole congregation in service as priests to God, his covenant people, seeking to bless the nations by demonstrating the beauty of his loving, holy rule in every sphere of life 
because we anticipate reigning with him unto eternity in a new heavens and a new earth as God's treasured possession before the very face of Jesus Christ. So then, you Christian, we church, have a privileged status which has a built-in role. We are a kingdom of priests bought with Christ's blood, called to live in right relationship with him, called to live in right relationship with each other as faithful stewards in this world that though groaning will be renewed. This is who we are in Christ. This is what we are called to in Christ. We have been brought near by grace. We have been brought near for covenant relationship. We have been brought near for privileged status. And if you have not yet come to trust in Christ, know that this royal longing can be fulfilled. It was intended to be. And if you are already a Christian, as you walk out of here this morning, belonging to Jesus, realize that the royal longing has been fulfilled. I want you to walk out of here this morning by God's grace in Christ holding your head high because you are one of his cherished, treasured possessions. That will never change. It will never change. That is who you are. In Christ, by God's grace, as you go to work or school or wherever tomorrow morning, you put your shoulders back. And you walk through this world as a representative of Jesus Christ, whose world this is. And who through you and us together is making a people for his own possession. You have been given the greatest jobs in all the history of the universe. And you are more treasured than you perhaps even dare to dream. And through his people... With Christ as our head, he desires for us to go and live out and speak about the beauty and wonder of him bringing him to us, to himself, so that the nations would be as glad in him as we are learning to be. So go and tap into that longing for significance that we human beings cannot help but feel everywhere you find it. And tell the story of what God has done in history to save a people for himself. Tell the story of the king who sent the royal son to die a sinner's death and this to make rebels his treasured subjects. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And your life and lips will be loosed to spread the joy of this to others. It is what he has made us to be. Let's pray. Lord, amidst all of the lies 
that we are bombarded with. And it's all of our fears that what we have heard not be true amidst all of our doubts that your grace is this marvelous. Let not any of the seeds scattered be sold, stolen, that we might truly rest in who you have made us to be in Christ and that we would delight and lean into the role that you have given to us as your treasured people so that through our church, and through our lives, others might taste and see your goodness in Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen.